Good evening, morning, whatever time it is. It feels like evening to me. Uh, but uh, it's good to be with you guys. If you don't know me, my name is Dave. I'm, I'm one of the pastors here at Frontline, and uh, we do team teaching. And so um, with other pastors, it's been my honor to just preach through the book of Mark with y'all. And we are drawing to an end, as Jesus is drawing to an end of as his journey, and we're following along in Mark. You can sense that the... the, the um, the tide is turning in many ways in the story, and the rest of it is going to slow down, and, um, and we're getting um, just into what Jesus is going to accomplish. This has been the, the story with the book of Mark we're going to get to. It's aiming to ask a few questions. The first is, who is Jesus? And we spent a lot of time in the first, let's say, eight, nine chapters of the book looking at the answer to that question, who is Jesus? This is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And as we begin to kind of turn, as we have for these last several weeks, the question changes a bit to not just who Jesus is, but what did he come, what did he come to accomplish? What does that mean for us? And I think in a, in a particular way, this passage today helps us look at the beauty of the answer to that question. What did Jesus come to do? What does it mean for us? And so like always, I, I want to spend a little time praying for you. I want to invite you to pray for me. We'll pray for uh, each other with each other, and then we'll work our way through this story. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for my friends. And again, um, our prayer is, is what has been our song, that we need you. We need you to see the beauty of your love and your life and the story, to understand scripture. We need your, your help, Spirit of God. I desperately need your help to, to help my friends, to hold you up. And we, we just know that you're here. And we do, as we sing, say that you are what we want. You're all we want. You're near and just help us know your presence and help us hear all that you have to say. Help us take hold of all the truth that you have for us this morning. We pray this, Jesus, in your name, God's people said. I'm really deeply aware that there were hundreds of different circumstances we all found ourselves in this last week. You know, some of us were holding babies that we could count how old they are on, on our fingers, right? Just uh, maybe just mere days old as new parents or new, new grandparents. Some of us found ourselves in, in hard spots, maybe waiting in hospital waiting rooms or lobbies or alone grieving the loss of somebody that we loved. Maybe sitting in a, a boss's waiting room in anticipation of whether we're getting a big raise or, or in concern that we might be a, a part of a round of layoffs. Some of us maybe found ourselves up late trying to live out not going to bed angry with our spouse or walking around processing the, the challenge of trying to raise our kids in this season. So I just want to invite us to think about a moment that you found yourself in this week that was particularly intense. And I want to imagine as you found yourself in that moment, whether you maybe were praying or not, that, that Jesus in the flesh comes alongside you. And he looks at you in the eyes, eyes that you can see his compassion and kindness and power in. And he asks you a question. And his question, shockingly, is, what do you want me to do for you? 
which is such like a revelatory question about who Jesus is. As we've seen throughout Mark, as we've been journeying with him and we have seen his heart, it makes so much sense that that would be the question that Jesus would ask. What do you want me to do for you? A question of wanting to serve, a question of love and kindness. That's a question that's going to come up multiple times in this story, and I want us to just imagine what would our answer be. A time that we found ourselves in need this week, a time of intensity, a time maybe where we were a bit scared or we felt our longing, Jesus appeared and asks us, what do you want me to do for you? Just take a breath, take a moment, and imagine what our answer to him would be. Because I think how we would respond tells us a lot about what we're carrying in our hearts and how we view him. And so again, this text is going to give us some insights today into our own lives, but more importantly, in, into the life of Jesus and what he came to do. And so we're just going to take it in three points as we work our way through every verse. And I want us to see first that when we ask ourselves, hey, what, when we look at this passage, what, what did Jesus come to do? The first thing we see is he set his direction. He's, he's a savior with a set direction. He set his direction towards Jerusalem, towards the cross. Look at verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. To set some context here, they're walking from the Sea of Galilee southward, and they're going to pass through Jericho on their way to Jerusalem. That that journey is quite literally a journey of going up, right? That's going from like below sea level up to Jerusalem. So that's going to be like a climb of nearly 4,000 feet over the course of over 20 miles, and so when, when Jesus says in a moment, and then Mark describes that they're going up, it's quite literal. It was a, it was a tough hike. It was a rough journey. But th- there's also like a, a figurative, beautiful sense to that because Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to go up in every sense of the word, to go up, to be suspended on the cross. He's going to go up because he's going to be forsaken by men and rejected and betrayed. He's going to be lifted up in death. He's going to Three days from that, rise up from the grave. And then after that, he's going to ascend up to heaven to take his throne. That Jesus, in the richest, most beautiful way, is on a journey of ascension. Up to death on the cross. Up to life that defeated death for us. And where is he as he's heading up on this journey is that Mark describes up ahead, walking ahead of them. He's not lagging behind as we're going to see that Jesus is explicit and specific in what he's about to walk out, he knows fully what lies ahead, and yet he's not dragging behind. He's not running the other way. He's up front with resolve leading. And I think that gives us some insight as to why the disciples are feeling what they're feeling here, because they're described as being amazed and, and even afraid. And there have been moments throughout the Gospel of Mark where it makes a lot of sense for these disciples to be amazed and afraid. They've seen things like Jesus wake up from a nap and then speak to a storm that they thought was going to kill him with just a word and shut it up. And they were amazed and afraid. That makes a lot of sense. They've seen him, they've seen him take a little girl by the hand and, and just raise her up to newness of life. Why are they amazed and afraid here, though? This is a familiar scene. Jesus walking and talking and teaching ahead of his disciples. Well, I think the fear and the amazement 
has everything to do with, with how Jesus is journeying specifically in this moment. That resolve that they see in him, and that, that determination in his journey towards Jerusalem. Like he's heading into the, the very center of political and religious power, both of which are, are opposed to him. There have been incredibly powerful people that have been scheming and planning his death and they have been doing ministry in, in the country, in the fringes, away from places like Jerusalem. And now they're heading to the heart of Jerusalem where Jesus has many enemies. And yet he's not scared. He's walking with bravery and courage and resolve. He's resolute. And he's eager to obey the will of God. Isaiah 50 verse 7 prophetically speaks of the Savior that his face will be set like flint. And that's what's happening here in this moment. There's this rock-hard determination from Jesus to obey the will of the Father. And it's in this context that he, he speaks to his disciples. We read, taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what will happen to him, saying, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him. And they will spit on him. And they will flog him. And they will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. There are two times earlier, as we've been studying the book of Mark, that Jesus kind of predicts his passion, his suffering. He predicts the events that will happen at his crucifixion. Mark 8.31 and Mark 9.31, and he gives specific details there. But here, in this scripture, he gives the most specificity. It's shared in the most vivid terms. He'll be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. But then there's new details here. Jesus shares that he's going to be delivered over to the Gentiles. And his shame, he describes in, in detail, that he's going to be mocked spit on, flogged, and killed. But what isn't new that we ought to remember is that each time that Jesus predicted his death, it doesn't end with his death in Mark 8, in Mark 9, here in Mark 10. Any time he spoke to his disciples about his, his death, he never left death getting the last word. Each and every time he said, and after three days, he will rise. Now the disciples forgot that, obviously. But we, we ought not. We ought to remember that, that, that Jesus, first off, willingly, with resolve, was walking to the cross knowing what it was going to cost him. He, he, in John chapter 10, verse 18, says, No one takes it away from me, speaking of his life, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to, to, to lay it down and take it back up. So we need to be struck at the beginning of this passage here with just the, the courage and the resolve of Jesus to lay his life down. And we need to remember that death doesn't get the final word, that Jesus was crystal clear every time he predicted his death, that his death was not the end, that he would defeat death and rise again. Paul talks about the importance of this to the very foundation of our faith. He says in, in 1 Corinthians 15, I'm going to pick up in verse 17. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. 
Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost, saying the dead are just dead if Christ has not risen. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, then we of all people must be pitied. Paul is saying, hey, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we're a sad bunch, the church. But he goes on to say in verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And so... We need to keep before us and hold in our hearts as a church. Yeah, we need to focus on the cross, celebrate the cross, talk often, always reminding ourselves of the work of Jesus on the cross, but it's easy for some reason for the church to, to focus on the cross as if Christ's work ended on the cross, and the beauty of our faith is it's the truth that Jesus is alive and well today. He's praying for us right now, and he sits on a throne. There is an empty tomb, and there is a throne who is a king that sits on it. That's the foundation of our faith. We don't have a dead savior. We have a living king. Jesus predicted that again and again. The second thing I want us to see when we ask, okay, what did Jesus come to do? We see in this passage that Jesus came to save through his service. He's a serving savior king. Look at verse 35. Because it's after Jesus shares this prediction for a third time that some friends' disciples approach him. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they came up to him and they said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. So the the contrast here, if we're reading carefully, should kind of be jarring, right? Jesus just described what he's going to do, which is the greatest gift given, the greatest act of service, the greatest just um, act of humility the the, the world will ever see. It's, It's amazing what he's describing, what he'll do, the love that he is about to live out for us. And James and John respond with like, now is the time to ask what we've been talking about. And they approach him and just are epically not reading the room and missing the moment. And they come with like this prideful, self-centered ambition. And, and I heard some of you chuckle. Like what they say is it is laughable. The thing that they come with first is like, hey, whatever we want you to do, we want you to do. <laughs> it's, it's, we want to begin with a blank check. Promise you're going to do whatever we ask before we ask what we're going to ask. It's like they sense that maybe it might not be the best thing to ask for, but they're moving forward anyway, right? And so Jesus, you know, he loves these men, they're his, his friends, his disciples, and he looks at them in the eye and he asks, so what, what do you want me to do for you? It's a question that lays their motives bare. It's a question that reveals ours. And their answer is, grant us to sit, one at your right and one at your left, in your glory. The request is, is a, not a small request, it's a huge one. And Antiquity in the ancient Near East, what they're asking for is we want to be your number one and or your number your number two and your number three, right? Like to, to have the throne, yes, that's yours, Jesus, but we want to be princes. We want to, to sit in places of authority because to sit at the right hand meant at at the 
the rung of power. Yes, you want to get the first rung, but give us, give us the next two. We want to be enthroned with you. You're going to be the center, but we, we need to be in the mix, Jesus. We don't want to just participate in the kingdom, but we want power and prestige and this primary place alongside you of position. And these men who had been loved by Jesus and cared for and, and led by Jesus, it's, it's plain to see that the sad thing in this moment, they're not just recognizing him as, as king. They see some things, but they've suffered from selective hearing, right? And they're approaching Jesus not as savior king as much as just genie in a bottle. They've got a list of demands not even things they need, but merely things they want. And they're saying, hey, Jesus, here's the blank check. Let's cash it in. We've got a big amount we're going to fill in. And uh, we want you to come through for us for the purposes of our, our own power, our own recognition. And I can read this, and I suspect you read this, and you're just thinking, like, once again, man, these disciples, they're epically missing it, and we, we, you know, we kind of chuckle, and we laugh, and, and once again, time and time again, we slow down in the uncomfortable moment where Scripture can read our heart, and we're like, oh, man, I see myself in James and John. Maybe I thought I would go about it in a, in a, in a more covert way, but gosh, don't I carry in my heart what they carry in their hearts, they're just perhaps being a bit more honest about it. And maybe they are actually more mature than I am because they just recognize that Jesus knows what they're carrying and I just need to be a little bit more honest with myself. Can't we even seek to, to worship or to be a disciple and have in that mixed selfish interest or worse yet at times just veil selfish interest with things that look like worship and discipleship. They carry some dark things in their heart and Jesus and his love is determined to shed some light on that darkness. And so he says to them, you don't know what you're asking. And asks, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Jesus tells them straight up, like, you have, you have no idea what you're even talking about. Like, you don't know what you're asking for. And then he asks them this question that all the commentators say, like, in the original language is, is obviously rhetorical, right? Like, the obvious answer is no, right? And James and John are like, yes, we can. We can do anything. We're able. Like, they are nicknamed the Sons of Thunder for a reason, right? There's just... just just totally unfounded confidence and arrogance that they have. And so Jesus asked this question, the cup that I drink, the baptism with which I'll be baptized, what's he talking about there? Well, all through the Old Testament, and we're even going to see clearly here later on in Mark, the, the imagery of cup, more often than not, it's, it's a picture of God's judgment, God's wrath towards his people who have continually sinned and rebelled against him. And Jesus is going to pray himself in, in Mark chapter 14 in the garden, right? Before his betrayal, his arrest, his crucifixion. What is he going to pray? Father, will you take this cup from me? But not my will, your will be done. 
So the cup that Jesus speaks to here is, is judgment that he's going to drink on the cross. And the same picture of baptism. He's not talking about the baptism that John the Baptist lived out and led into in his ministry, a baptism of repentance, or even other places in the gospel where you see Jesus and his disciples, like in John 4, baptizing. This is a baptism that's closer to, let's say, the baptism Noah saw, a flood of judgment. And Jesus is saying, can, can you experience the, the flood of judgment that I'm going to be overwhelmed by on the cross? for the wages of sin for all humanity. And these guys just not understanding in their arrogance and ignorance say, yeah, we're, we're able. And they hugely miss it. And Jesus says to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink in the baptism with which I'm baptized, you'll be baptized. But to sit in my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared. So what Jesus is saying here, I believe, is that he's saying, hey, look, you guys actually will suffer as you love and lead and and serve in the church. There are going to be times where it's going to be hard and there will be a cup to drink and a baptism to experience that are suffering, but that suffering is not the suffering that Jesus is going to experience here because they can't bear that. They're not able they're not worthy. See, the beauty is like even as we look at our sacraments here, is if, if, if you have not been baptized and perhaps you're going to go to the baptism class, like the beauty of that baptism is it's not a, a, a flood of judgment. That's the baptism that Jesus underwent, a flood of judgment on the cross. But our baptism is, is when we are, have our faith in him, we're able to enter those waters and say, I was dead in sin, now I'm dead to sin, and now I'm alive in Christ Jesus. And we can come to this table and and drink the juice or the wine and taste its sweetness because Jesus was able to taste the bitterness of the wages of sin. And we can raise a glass to our king and say, he drank what I deserved so that I can drink freely of his grace and mercy. Word gets out. Maybe somebody overheard. John Mark goes on to write, and when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. This word was a word we looked at last week, indignant. There's like an anger rooted in injustice. They are deeply offended and upset. And knowing the disciples, they were probably primarily offended and upset because like James and John got to Jesus before they got a chance to, right? They said the quiet part out loud. They all wanted a position like that, and James and John were the first to actually have the boldness to ask for it. They probably similar, uh, harbored similar ambitions, and in their insecurity or jealousy, now they're really mad. But I think there is a lesson here for us, though. You have these men who have been following Jesus for years now, and here's a moment of, of hurt, of division, and we see that the heart that James and John carried, that, that me first heart, that heart that seeks to, to be served, to enthrone themselves. Yeah, they want Jesus to be at the center, but they, they want to be right there 
getting served right alongside him, that a heart like that is really common in the community of people who follow Jesus. It's in me. I think it's in each and every one of us. And so some of us, in a big way, and all of us in some way, struggle with that. And what we see here is the havoc and the pain that it can cause. When we say, hey, we're at the the center of this relational solar system and everybody needs to revolve around me and serve me, we would never say it that explicitly, but we can live it out and and expect that. And, And then we're surprised maybe when those relationships spin out of orbit because we're putting ourselves at the center, not Christ. Jesus seizes on the situation to teach all his disciples a lesson. And he called them to him. He called them together. And he said to them, hey, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And their their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be among you. So Jesus is, is inviting them to bring to mind great rulers of the world, Roman emperors and, and kings and queens and secular authorities and say, hey, they aim not to serve but to, to be served. If we just even picture a, a king or a queen in our mind, how do we picture them? We don't picture them like serving at the table, walking around filling glasses, right? No, we, we picture them at the head of the table being served. We don't picture them kneeling and loving others and washing feet and fighting for their good. No, we we picture them sitting upon their own throne and and being served, right? And Jesus is saying, yeah, picture that in your mind. That's what worldly leadership looks like, wielding power and position and demanding service. And Jesus is saying, you get that in your mind and you need to hear from me that I fully reject that. That's not the type of king I am and that's not the type of kingdom that I lead. He doesn't say it won't be be this way among you. He says, it's not this way among you. There's no place for that. He, he, he sounds like a parent to me here. Like all of our, if you're a parent, you've said in one shape or form something along the lines of like, hey, I don't care what Jenny's parents do in her house. In our house, this is how it is. And Jesus is saying, hey, I, I don't care about those other kingdoms where people are always wanting to be served and they lord their authority, their authority over people. That's not how it is in my kingdom. And he goes on to say how it is in his kingdom. But whoever would be great among you must be a servant. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. Like this is shocking, offensive aggressive illustration that he's using. He's flipping the disciples on their head and saying, hey, look, the preeminent virtue of my kingdom is not power or wisdom or freedom, but the culture we have, the ethos in the kingdom of God is service. In greatness, yeah, I want you to be great, but greatness isn't in power and prestige and authority. Greatness is service. And he goes on to make that point in such extreme ways. If you want to be great, be a servant. If you want to be first, James and John, be a slave to all. James Edwards, in his commentary, 
on the Gospel of Mark, he says, at no place do the ethics of the kingdom of God clash more vigorously than the ethics of the world than in the matter of power and service. This is so different. And the desire for dominance and to to be served, what does it do? It, It focuses our attention on ourselves and as it does that, it kills love. So it makes so much sense as to why Jesus is, is coming at this and grabbing it at the root and pulling it out of his community of followers because love by nature is others-focused, right? When someone came and asked Jesus, what does it mean to love your neighbor? He, he told them a story about somebody who sacrificially loved the, great, the good Samaritan who saw somebody in need and just poured themselves out and sacrificed and cared for. Dr. Martin Luther King, he preached a sermon on this text. And the sermon uh, is entitled, based on the illustration he he uses, uh, The Drum Major Instinct. I believe he preached the sermon in 1968. It was at Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, and he began his message by talking about the drum major. You know, if you look at a parade, the drum major is the person out in front. They, they're leading the way. They're getting all the attention. They're the one leaning way far back with the intense hat and the baton, right? And he said, hey, there, there's that desire in each and every one of us. And what Jesus is doing, Dr. King says, is, is he's redeeming that desire. He says, you don't have to give up on it. You can want to be first, but if Jesus is your king, you should want to be first in love. (laughs) You can be first, but be first in moral excellence. He says, I want to be first in generosity. He goes on to say, so Jesus gave us a new norm of greatness. If you want to be important, wonderful. If you want to be recognized, wonderful. If you want to be great, wonderful. But recognize that he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. That's the new definition of greatness. And what Jesus is going to drive home here in a moment is that this isn't just like a set of rules for life. This isn't just like an ethical system that he wants us to live out for our benefit. It's sweeter than that. It's richer than that. It's more powerful than that. Jesus is going to say, look, this is how you ought to be. This is how you must be because this is who I am. Verse 45, he says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Now, this, this verse, I think, is, is the definitive verse in the entire Gospel of Mark. It's the linchpin. The whole book hinges on this. We see most clearly in Jesus' life service, because to serve is to love, and God is love. And so we ask ourselves, like, oh, what is Jesus all about? What did he come to accomplish? What's his mission? What did he set out to do? Well, here we get the answer from Jesus, and it's straightforward. 
For even the Son of Man, remember that's that rich title taken from the book of Daniel, the promise of a king who's going to bring about a kingdom that will be God's kingdom and reign forever. It's his favorite name for himself. Jesus is saying, for the Son of Man, me, I came not to be served, but I'm a king who comes to serve, and I do that in my life, and I also give that in my death as a ransom for many. I mean, perhaps you're here and you're uncertain about what you believe regarding Christianity, and we're so happy you're here. But one thing we can agree on as you're exploring the claims of the Christian faith is that, that hands down, there's been no more significant person to ever live in the history of the world than Jesus Christ. There's not a close second. Nobody has had any impact on the world that this man had. And we as Christians believe that the answer to that is, is apparent. It's like, how does a poor Jewish carpenter change the world? He isn't just merely a man, although he was a man, he was also the son of God. And yet, he led and he wielded power and authority different than any person ever had before him is that he came in all of his greatness and his divinity and his power and his life was one of complete service, of laying his life down, of serving others. And and that road of service reaches its summit when he hung up there on the cross. That was the mountaintop of service. That was the clearest way anyone has and will ever serve anyone. Jesus is saying that to serve, I came to give my life as a ransom for many. That word ransom, like I think of kidnappers, I think of stuff going on in the news down in in Haiti right now where missionaries have been kidnapped and there's being a, a ransom demanded. And that definition is, is probably not particularly helpful to us. It, it, it means clearly deliverance by purchase. Ransom is to, to free by paying a price. And in the ancient world, you could be captive as a prisoner of war or as a slave or as a criminal or as a debtor. And to be freed, it was possible for someone who was able and willing to come and pay a ransom for your release. So ransom is redemption, it's, it's deliverance as a price that's paid on somebody's behalf. And only somebody that, that could pay that price and was free could set a captive free by paying a ransom. It's so what God's word tells us and why Jesus came is the state of humanity is one of captivity that the crimes that we've committed against God, the ways that we've rebelled and run from God, each and every one of us, that's a reality for us. And the word that the scripture uses for that is, is sin. It's a crime and rebellion against God, a rejection of his rule and his authority. And so we find ourselves, because of those sins, in captivity And Jesus is saying here, look, I came to serve. I'm the only free person to ever walk the face of this earth. That he was innocent and blameless and perfect. He is the one person who who 
as the son of God, never committed any crimes. He was perfectly sinless, and yet what he came to do was serve in such a way that although he didn't deserve it, he's going to experience everything that he promised earlier, rejection, betrayal, heartbreak, physical pain and shame, and also a a cup and a baptism that's wrath that we deserve, just wrath from the Father. He's going to experience that. This is the ransom, the price that, that he's willing to pay so that we can be free. And he's going to do it for, for the many. That means for us. As we believe and put our faith in him. See, Jesus is saying, my my painful and glorious destiny is to pay this price that I can only pay, and I'm going to pay it for you in love. And yet, Jesus is saying, although this is something that I can only do, I want you to be so struck by my, as my followers, I want you to be so impacted and transformed by this this loving servanthood you see in me that I also want it to, to shape and form your lives where you pattern your life after me, where where you are led by a servant king and you are then citizens who walk in service to one another in the world. And what's so beautiful is we see this just in the life of John. That here he comes and he says, yeah, I need a throne right next to you, Jesus, so I can have power and prestige and be served. As a young man, that's his request. And yet, as a old man who's been shaped and transformed by the love of God, he writes this in 1 John 3.16 to the church. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we got to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. The third thing I want us to see, we look in this passage and ask, like, hey, what did Jesus come to do Lastly, we see that Jesus, he stops for those who call for mercy. There have been lots of stories about miracles and healing in Mark thus far, and here we come to this moment, and it's really interesting, and it's different, and it's maybe easy to overlook because we get a name here, which is unique, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, like I don't think there has been anybody healed up to this point that we get their, their name and a description of, of who they are. And one of the ways that, that, that that's probably kind of beautiful and fun is that Bartimaeus was probably known to the early church. So imagine you're at, at the church in Jerusalem or the church in Rome and you get a copy of Mark's gospel for the first time and you're reading it and it's being read aloud to you by one of the elders and then Bartimaeus is mentioned and then there's Bartimaeus. You know, he's like, oh yeah. I used to not be able to see. We talk about that all the time. You know me. I can, I can tell you this story. I was changed by Jesus. And yet, I think we also get some specific details here because, as we're going to see, John Mark is, is highlighting this in an important way because it stands in contrast to James and John. Bartimaeus is, is a blind man in this moment, and he's begging at the gates of Jericho. And for all of the hardship and the hard things in his life, he's in poverty, he's hungry, and he's blind. He is in a good spot to ask for mercy and help 
and charity because he's at the gates of, of the wealthiest city in the region and one of the busiest cities in the region. So he had gotten used to and was intimately aware of the sound of the road in and out of Jericho. And yet this day, he hears something different. There's, there's an activity, there's like a, a hustle and a bustle, there's a movement that's different. And so we just imagine Bartimaeus asking, what's happening today? What's different? What's, what's going on in the city? And somebody finally stops to tell him, well, Jesus of Nazareth is about to walk by. <laughs> I, I love Bartimaeus, like you gotta love this guy. He, he then becomes the loudest sound in all of Jericho. Right, And he begins to, to cry out. He's heard that Jesus is about to pass by. So he's screaming, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And then it's kind of similar to the uh, earlier in chapter 10. We have people that want to get between Bartimaeus and Jesus like they wanted to get between Jesus and, and children. And they're like, shh, be quiet. You're making a scene. He doesn't have time for you, Bartimaeus, right? And again, you, you love Bartimaeus because he's like, hey, you're just fueling the fire. You, the more you tell me to shut up, the louder I'm going to get. And he's screaming at the top of his lungs. He will not be silent, desperate, full of faith. If Jesus can just hear me. And Jesus does hear him. What I love, not only about how loud Bartimaeus is, I love how theologically sound he is. <laughs> Jesus Son of David. I, I think this is the only time, to my knowledge, that that title is used to call to Jesus in all the book of Mark. And what Bartimaeus knew is the promise God made in 2 Samuel to David to say, hey, someday there's going to be a king that comes from your line and he's going to be a king that's going to rule forever. And he's going to be perfect. And, and Bartimaeus in faith is... Even though he can't see Jesus in his heart, he sees he's the promised king. He's the son of David. He's the Messiah, the savior of the world. And so he rightly calls out to him with his royal title, and he knows what to cry out. He says, show me mercy. And Mark tells us something beautiful, that Jesus, Jesus stopped. When Jesus heard Bartimaeus cry out, Jesus stopped in his tracks. Nothing could stop Jesus from going to Jerusalem. He was walking with resolve, his face set like a stone. He had rock-hard determination. Nothing would slow him down except a desperate cry for mercy. The very reason he was going to Jerusalem to show mercy and to give grace. He'll stop here one last time to heal a man to show his mercy and his grace. And so Jesus stops and he calls Bartimaeus. And he asks him this familiar question. What do you want me to do for you? And like James and John, Bartimaeus has a big request. He could have said, I need money. I'm hungry. I'm poor. I need food. He says, I need to see I would like an end to this darkness. He says, your scripture, if you have the ESV, it probably says, Rabbi, that I might receive my sight. 
that, uh, that word rabbi, if you get into the, the details of the translation, it's actually rabboni, which is, is a, it, it's, it's richer than just teacher. It means teacher, yes, but more than teacher, it also means master. Master, that I might receive my sight. And you can sense then the contradiction between James and John. Hey, we want, a, we want a throne. We want a rule next to you. We want authority. We want power. And Bartimaeus is saying, master, I'm taking the, the posture of a servant. And I'm asking you to just show me mercy and kindness and in faith. I know that you can do it. Would you help me see? And Jesus answers him and he says, go, your faith has healed you. And, and that word heal, it's got rich meaning. He's speaking to the physical state of his eyes. Yes, Jesus heals him so he can see, but Jesus is also speaking to the very state of his heart. That word heal also means to, to save his very soul, that there's physical and spiritual renewal here. And we see evidence of that by how Bartimaeus responds. Because after receiving his sight, he, what does he do? He follows Jesus on the path of servanthood. He doesn't run to take in the sights. He doesn't go find his friends right away. He just says, you're my king, you're my master, I'm following you. You're on the road to servanthood, now I'm on the road to servanthood too. I cried out for mercy, you saw me, you healed me. Now, king, I'm gonna follow the path that you're walking. Let's stand and pray. Father, we thank you for this example of Bartimaeus, but we just recognize that it wasn't like him and his own strength and wisdom that he came to see, but it was your work and your grace. And so we end where we began in a real way with prayer, and we just say, hey, we need you. We need you to help us see. We need you to help us see our hearts where we're taking postures of pride and wanting to be served and not served. Help us in our repentance. And help us be citizens of a kingdom. Our own little kingdom outpost here in this congregation that's marked by knowing and celebrating your love and then sharing that love and servanthood to one another. Spirit, would you, would you grow us to even greater degrees to be a people marked by loving service? We want to be great by Jesus, your definition of greatness. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name. And God's people said, amen.